So I would say that Narendra Modi, the BJP, and the organizations and the movements associated with them have a very different vision of what a democratic society should look like in India. So they are committed to the, the pr- sort of the processes and the procedures of democracy, but not to the values of a liberal democracy, because they don't think Indians want liberal democracy. They don't think liberal democracy is appropriate, given India's values. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Talking about India today, guys. So, yeah, so just in case you were thinking that there weren't enough countries that were acting in ways that were problematic from the point of view of democracy and Democrats, here comes another one, right? And it's such an interesting one, too, because it's a fairly new democracy, right. and it's an extremely large democracy, the biggest, yeah. and it's a somewhat raucous democracy. Right, and if you've been following the news at all, you've heard about Kashmir and uh, what happened there, and if you're like us, you don't know exactly what that means and how it how it comes about. You don't know the history, uh, so and we figured it was the right time to bring in yet another expert. Yeah, and, and luckily we have a great guest with us today to help unpack that. Uh, Vanita Yadav is an associate professor of political science at Penn State, and uh, as you'll hear, really an expert on all things Indian politics. As we've seen in some of the other episodes we've done on Brazil and Hungary and 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 uh, uh, Brexit, there are some really uncanny similarities in all these countries and, and kind of that, you know, what we call it the authoritarian playbook. But there's also some in really interesting and important distinctiveness in all these countries. And that's especially true with India. Well, sure. That's what, that's what we're trying to get at with all right. these different shows is to, is, you know, Following along a bit with early guests of the podcast from uh, How Democracies Die, the mm-hmm. best-selling New York Times book, that there's a sort of playbook here right. or kind of pattern in how countries move toward authoritarianism from their democratic roots. In other words, through democracy, right. they become more authoritarian, but also by interviewing experts in these countries to be sure we pay attention to what's unique about them. Right. And the only other thing I would add to that is is not just that the, the playbook seems to be very similar, but also it's worth thinking about what is it about these countries that is the same in regards to why it's a fertile ground? What, what is happening now that makes it um, so, I mean, is it, I guess that's the first question, is it different now? But it seems to be, you know, the, the consensus is that there's a kind of, you know, widespread democratic erosion. And if that's true, why? What, what is it about these cultures that are in so many ways so different that is, um, uh, creating the possibility for creeping authoritarianism. Yeah, or if there's a sort of contagion effect going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to learn a lot about India listening to uh, my colleague Vanita today. But but certainly I'm struck that this has been a fast-growing economy, one of the mm-hmm. fastest-growing economies in the world, I believe. It does yeah, not, to my knowledge, China. have yeah. massive immigration. It's mm-hmm. fairly mm-hmm. homogenous, at least in terms of uh, a strong Hindu majority. Uh, of course, it's, there are all these issues with Kashmir, and, uh, and, and I know Vanita is going to talk, going to speak to those. Uh, but it did have me thinking: what is, yeah, what is the common element here? And it's, you know, maybe it's just a recognition that that this is where democracy may be leading us, at least in many places. 
I mean, this is part of the point of how democracies yeah. die. Governments are elected democratically and then lead in a in a non-democratic direction. Yeah, they're using the tools of democracy, right, to to advance some of these populist and, nationalist and to, ideas. And that, and that is certainly what I think is common about the about the case in right. India. What what I can't really get a handle on as much as the underlying causes. Right. Mm-hmm. The the last thing I'll say to maybe transition here is um, the other thing that uh, is is worth keeping an ear out for in this interview is um, Vanita also talked about what we often refer to as the guardrails of democracy, things like the free press and mm-hmm. the courts and the, the status. Those there, as you might have picked up even just from the first couple minutes, they're not that great in, right. in some respects. But um, she also talks about the uh, kind of strong culture of civil society and of organizing. So... So all all right. those kind of things to, to keep an ear out for. Um, if it sounds like we talked about a lot, it's because we did. But um, Vanita covered it all very well. And I'm very excited for you to hear my conversation with her. So let's get to it. Before we get to this week's interview, I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor on Democracy Works, the Penn State World Campus and its Psychology of Leadership program. Sharing responsibility, empowering others, looking forward, motivating from the head as well as the heart, building trust through collaborative decision-making. Is this the type of leader you want to be? Then apply for the master's program that will get you there, the Master of Professional Studies in the Psychology of Leadership, offered entirely online by Penn State University's World Campus. Learn from talented faculty with top academic credentials and professional experience. Learn from other students from diverse backgrounds and industries. The Master of Professional Studies in the Psychology of Leadership at Penn State allows you to be the leader you've always wanted to be. Learn more about the Psychology of Leadership program at worldcampus.psu.edu slash leadership. Again, that's worldcampus.psu.edu slash leadership. And thank you to the World Campus for supporting Democracy Works. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Vanita Yadav. Vanita, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, so we are going to be talking all about democracy in India today. And uh, this is not a history podcast, but I thought in this case it, it might be helpful to start with a bit of history. Uh, India, while it is the world's largest democracy, is also a, a relatively young democracy, at least compared to some other places around the world. Can you start by giving us an overview of how India came to be a democracy and uh, maybe how that history affects how people view democracy there? So India is a relatively new country. I mean, it's an old civilization, but it didn't really exist as a country before 1947. So the British colonized that part of uh, Asia for about 200 years. And when they left, that territory was divided up into India and Pakistan. And India and Pakistan, sort of the leaders gained experience under British colonial rule uh, with parliamentary governance, because after the Government of India Act, uh, there were elections, parties were allowed. And so the leadership of both of these countries actually had experience with elections. Mm -hmm. And so the parliamentary system was really something they were familiar with and had uh, sort of competed successfully in. And so that was adopted in India. Uh, in 1950. And India has kept the same constitution, the same parliamentary system uh, through its entire post-independence period. It's also one of the rare developing countries that has actually maintained 
uh, democratic regime for its entire existence. And the quality of that regime has varied quite a bit, mm-hmm. but it has maintained itself yeah. as a democratic regime. It's a very robust multi-party system. It's always been a very robust multi-party system. Um, it's got a very strong free press. Again, something that changes over time. And I think one of the unique things about India is that voter turnout is actually higher in rural areas than it is in urban areas. And that tells you something about how deeply democratic values, norms, and practices have really sunken into ordinary citizenry. So there is sort of this very deep understanding that we have the right to vote. And it's, you know, and people do sell their votes, but they understand the value of a vote. Um, And uh, so in many ways, it's a very robust democracy. In many ways, it's a very flawed democracy. Yeah. So on that that continuum you mentioned earlier of kind of the the health of democracy ebbing and flowing over the years, where would you put it today as we sit here in 2019? So I think it's definitely part of this larger global trend where democratically elected regimes are – undoing a lot of the liberal protections and liberal rights and weakening institutions. So Poland, Hungary, Turkey, uh, among developing countries. And in the last, I would say, five or six years, India has become part of that unfortunate trend. Uh, If you look back at history, it's not the first time this has happened in India. We had a period like this in the 1970s uh, through the early 80s. But it's definitely, I would say, declining as a democracy right now. Mm-hmm. And, and so thinking about the kind of strength of, of democratic norms, as you mentioned, you know, people coming out in, in rural areas to vote, that all seemed to have happened pretty quickly over a generation, two generations at, at most from the, the, the time the country and the constitution were, were established. Do, do you have a sense of, of how that spread and, and maybe how it spread so quickly or, or why it spread so quickly? From 1947, when India gains independence, till about 1969, uh, you have leaders who are genuinely committed uh, to democracy. And so, you know, we have a lot of theories about how political parties are sort of the school where voters and leaders are schooled into democratic values and practices. And I think India really demonstrates Mm -hmm. that. I think India was very lucky in having a good set of leaders who were genuinely committed to democracy. Yeah. And so now thinking about Narendra Modi, uh, is it is it safe to say that he does not share that same commitment or the strength of a commitment to democracy that maybe some of his his predecessors had? So I would say that Narendra Modi, the BJP, and the the organizations and the movements associated with them have a very different vision of what a democratic society should look like in India. So they are committed to the the pr- sort of the processes and the procedures of democracy but not to the values of a liberal democracy because they don't think Indians want liberal democracy. They don't think liberal democracy is appropriate given India's values. And again, this is their concept of what Indian values are. Yeah, can, can you uh, explain to listeners what, what the BJP stands for and, and, and kind of what the, the party symbolizes? Sure. So the BJP is the Bharatiya Janata Party. It is a right-wing religious fundamentalist party. And it was created in the mid-1980s, but it's sort of the continuation of this family of religious parties that has existed from pre-independence through all of the earlier democratic decades. And it has a platform that envisions Indian society and Indian government as being based on Hindu values. And uh, that means the way you define rights, what state policy should be about, the way institutions should work, how the values and practices the institutions should protect, 
all of these stem from their idea of what Hinduism is. And um, Kashmir and, uh, you know, sort of revoking uh, Kashmir's special status in India, revoking a lot of rights given to minority religious groups has been part of that agenda from the beginning as well. Yeah, it's, it's something like like 80% of, of India's population is, is Hindu. Is that, is that yes. right to you? So it's about 80% Hindu, about 14% Muslim, which makes it the fourth largest Muslim country in the world. And it's about 2% Christians, less than 2% Sikhs. So every religion in the world is represented. Mm-hmm. But it's predominantly a Hindu country in terms of its religion. Mm-hmm. So, so given that, I mean, is it surprising at all to think that like something like this Hindu nationalist movement didn't happen sooner, maybe? Or, or is there something about other things that are going on in culture, in the economy, other factors that that might have made now or the you know the past couple of years an, an an opportune time for for this movement to kind of rise up and gain traction? So, there's always been a strand. Uh, within the population as well as within the political establishment that has disagreed with the division of British India into India and Pakistan. And the same group of parties and institutions, parties and organizations, um, have always argued that India is a Hindu civilization. The state should be based on Hindu values and principles. And they have mobilized from the earliest days and, you know, competed and They've actually done reasonably well. So if you go back and look at the 50s and the 60s, they were winning about 10% of the popular vote, which is quite a bit. India has a first-past-the-post electoral system, so that's a big share of the vote. And so they have always, there has always been a political voice for that opinion. The BJP has been the most successful among that voice. And there are a lot of reasons that people have put forward for this. They've been succeeding since the 1980s. And... This is the first time, so India had elections in 2019, and this is the first time that any religious party, including the BJP, has actually won back-to-back terms. So that is really, I think, sort of a turning point, uh, perhaps, uh, in India's political history. Now, why did this happen now? I think for that, you have to look at a couple of things, uh, the entire political party system and what's been happening with political parties in India in general. And so the BJP has stood out as one of maybe two parties that actually has a clear ideological sort of platform, has very strong party organizations, has very committed workers, and, you know, has sort of stood up for some principles consistently over time. And so the BJP's reputation as being relatively corruption-free, having a coherent agenda that they, they can clearly demonstrate commitment to, and sort of having this very effective grassroots-level organization what is the the vision that they're selling to their their prospective voters or or to the the kind of population at large? What is I think unique about the BJP and they're one of the few parties to have done this is they were so effective in projecting this image of competence and being corruption free and having this coherent agenda that they did what very few other parties have done, which is support for them crossed caste lines, Mm -hmm. and caste is sort of a way of looking at ethnicity in India, they had people from lower caste supporting them. They had people who were highly educated, less educated, supporting them. They had people from different religious groups supporting them. They had urban and rural groups supporting them. So they are one of the very few parties in maybe the last three decades, maybe one of two parties, that has been able to develop that kind of 
coalition that cuts across class and religion and caste in India. Yeah, we heard something similar. Uh, we did an, an episode earlier this year about Brazil, and I think Bolsonaro and and his party had built kind of similar coalitions across across um, economic lines, across caste lines, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of those kind of authoritarian leaders, you, you mentioned. Hungary, Poland, you know, we can certainly put Brazil in there. So all these mm-hmm. countries are in a kind of democratic backsliding. Um, but there's in all of those, they kind of point to the leaders as a, a big piece of that. The fact that they have these authoritarian, strongmen kind of leaders. Mm-hmm. Would you put Modi in that category with Orban and, and Erdogan and Bolsonaro and, and those folks? No, I, I think that would be mischaracterizing what's happening in India. In India, Modi is the face of a party and importantly of this organization called the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is a hardline religious Hindu fundamentalist uh, NGO, uh, which is kind of the strength behind the BJP party. And it is really the party's turn at par and it's really the party's agenda and the RSS is driving Hmm. the party's agenda. So this is not Modi's personal authoritarian tendencies. This is really the RSS and the BJP's agenda and their idea of what democracy looks Hmm. like. And these are people who have an authoritarian influenced agenda. And so that's why you see that coming across from Modi. Uh, But Modi, I I think saying that this is, you know, that Modi is similar to Erdogan would be giving him too much credit. It's more (laughs) systemic. Yeah. Well, and and I think maybe more dangerous, too, in some ways, because, you know, leaders come and go, but Mm. the party has much more infrastructure in place. They've already won a second term and could conceivably win, win many more than that if, if things keep going their way. And this is the fear in India right now is that, you know, we had a dominant party system in the 1960s and the 1970s till the mid 80s. And that did a lot of damage to democratic institutions and practices. And the concern now is that that is the same thing is happening now because, again, there is no effective opposition party. And so the BJP, between its reputation and its genuine sort of organizational capacity, can really perpetuate this uh, for a long time. And they are systematically dismantling voices of opposition. So NGOs that are secular or that support women's rights or rights for religious minorities that they disagree with. The media has been very effectively captured and they are actually going after the handful of channels that are still neutral or are critical of the government. So as long, so you see a similar pattern, that they're maintaining the processes and the institutions because that gives them democratic legitimacy. But you see very clearly that you have a dominant party system emerging that can perpetuate itself both because it has genuine popularity and because it has the capacity to capture these institutions and keep that capture going for a long mm-hmm. time. Right. So, so I know you were just uh, in India this summer. So there's, if there's not that support uh, coming from an, an opposition party perspective or, or that, that kind of place of support, is there anything happening on the ground at, at kind of the grassroots level to try to push back against some of these forces? So this has been India's saving grace so far, I think, is that it does have a very vibrant uh, civil society. And so you have groups organizing on every issue under the sun and from very different angles. So you still have leftist groups. You still have very, you know, extremely conservative, uh, you know, fiscally conservative pro-market groups. You have everything in the middle. And so the civil society groups really have been the key force of opposition. Now, it's a federal country. So there are political parties that exist at the regional level 
that have defeated the BJP. So if you look at the southern states in India, most of them are ruled by regional political parties. And if you go along sort of the eastern coast, you see the same pattern, that the regional political parties that are holding on to power. How long that lasts is the question, because the center does have a lot of authority, uh, even within the federal system. And the BJP has been very flexible and very sophisticated about building alliances with regional parties when it realizes that it can't just win an election outright. And just to give you one sort of sense of this is, if you look at, you know, even 2013, when the BJP was already in power, that was its first term, 2014 to 2019. So just before it came into power in 2013, there were only five out of 29 state governments that were BJP ruled. There are 20 today. So they have really expanded. Yeah. Really. And what what's their selling point to, to those those smaller governments, those those state governments? How are they? How have they been able to expand so quickly? Well, I mean, the one thing is if they are holding the center down, then they control a lot of the resources uh, that states crave, right? Uh, and that's a very that's a very attractive thing. And then there's a, there's a negative veto power, right? So if the states want to initiate some policies, the center can very effectively veto them, if not de jure, at least, uh, you know, in practice, they can stop states from doing a lot of things. They control the appointments to governorships, and governors also have influence, which can be very critical in the formation of governments at the state level. So there are lots of little levers that they can use to make life really miserable for state governments that are opposed to them, or, you know, help state governments stay in power and increase their ability to stay in power if they ally with the BJP. And again, I think the BJP's organizational capacity and their willingness to share this with their partners is huge. Yeah. Uh, so we, you, you mentioned Kashmir briefly earlier. I, I know that you were there when when a lot of that activity happened over the summer, uh, given how quickly the news cycle moves these days. It's easy to forget sometimes uh, how when these what what exactly happens or, or lose some of the details. Can you um, help help remind us what what happened there with Kashmir and, and the BJP and kind of where things stand now? So. If I can just give a little oh, bit sure, of yeah, history sure. on, on Kashmir. So Kashmir has been sort of this unfinished business from the earliest days of independence. It was a princely state. And when the British Empire was being divided, princely states were given the prerogative to choose to be independent or become part of India and Pakistan. And Kashmir was unusual because it was a Muslim-majority state with a Hindu king. And so while the king was trying to decide what to do, Pashtun tribals invaded from Pakistan, supported by Pakistan. And when the king asked the Indian government to intervene, he was basically told he needed to accede or sign the instrument of accession for the Indian army to help out. And so that's what happened. But that instrument did not commit the kingdom to agree to the constitution of India at all. And, you know, India went to the UN in 48-49. And the resolution that came out was that there should be a plebiscite, which would allow Kashmiris to choose independence, Pakistan or India. And India agreed to this, but the plebiscite has never been held. And so there has been sort of, I would say, maybe a low level of discontent with that fact. But Kashmir didn't really sort of blow up as an issue until 1988. And that's when there were massively rigged state elections. And that sort of tipped Mm -hmm. the balance into militancy. So there's been a holding pattern from 88 to now. And that holding pattern has meant sort of a lot of domestic as well as foreign terrorist groups in Kashmir and the Indian army stepping in with massive human rights violations on both sides. So that holding pattern is what was stopped. So there's something called Article 370, which granted Kashmir 
special status, which basically ensured that Kashmir could have its own constitution, could legislate its own laws, except for a few areas, and allow them to regulate the, the rights of their own citizens. And what happened on August 5th of this year is that the BJP government used a presidential ordinance to revoke that. And so they did two things. They revoked the article, which takes away Kashmir's special status, and they split the state into sort of two regions. Jammu and Kashmir would be one. Jammu is predominantly Hindu, Kashmir is predominantly Muslim, and another state, which would be Ladakh, which is uh, Buddhist. And they were sort of downgraded from being a state to being union territories. And that means they are now going to be governed directly by the center, and every facet of the constitution of India is now applicable to them. So they are completely governed by the Indian constitution and laws. And so there's still a debate about whether this is legal or not. This whole process was accompanied by complete suspension of the media, of the ability to assemble. Phone lines were cut. The internet was cut. And this was done before the announcement. And some of these have been lifted since then. Some of these uh, sort of suspensions are still in place. So the process itself has been marked by this complete disregard of the very constitutional rights that are now being applied to the Kashmiri population. It's a position that's been supported by most in the BJP, by some leaders in the Congress, which is a secular party, and also by some Indians for different reasons. Some for the reason that a Muslim-majority state should not be getting a special status and they should have the same status as every other Indian state. Um, some because they sincerely believe that it has held back uh, Kashmir from fully sort of emotionally, socially, economically integrating into India. But I think support for the way in which it is done is non-existent outside the BJP and the RSS. Yeah, and there were also massive protests, right, as all of this was, was unfolding in, in August? So there were no protests in Kashmir. There were a lot of protests by secular parties, by leftist parties, by you know regional parties, by other civil society groups in India. Most TV channels, again, at this point are captured. So there wasn't a lot of critical analysis or critical debate about this. And the debate about Kashmir has become so couched in terms of patriotism and nationalism that if you were to support a position that says perhaps the plebiscite should be held or perhaps Kashmiris, uh, you know, are being, uh, you know, mistreated and should be you know, made to feel po- in a positive way that they're citizens of India, you can be accused of treason. And it's happening all the time. And people have been arrested for, for taking positions like that. So the environment's become very poisoned and the debate's yeah. really been shut off. Does, does the BJP have control of the courts as well or, or are they independent? The Supreme Court is still independent. The lower, court, lower courts less so. But there has been an escalating battle in the last, I would say, maybe two to three years where it's very clear that the BJP is trying to get its own people appointed. So there is, the fight has been on. And the question really is whether there's enough support uh, in civil society, in the press, to help the Supreme Court and the higher courts sort of maintain their independence. But at this point, it's not clear whether that will happen or not. We've seen recently Modi and Donald Trump appearing together in the U.S., the, the Howdy Modi rallies. What does Trump see in Modi and and vice versa. What what might what might Modi see in him, or what what are kind of the the lines or kind of the, the links between those those two figures? The relationship is is interesting because ideologically, I think Modi and Trump do have a lot in common. They are both leaders 
who have uh, competed on platforms which talk about how the common man has been alienated from their own culture, from their own values, either by immigrants, in India's case, perhaps by global culture and the invasion of Western culture. And they also have uh, sort of a shared, I would say, distrust or animosity towards different religious minorities, notably Muslims. They are also both people who would be in the sort of my country first category. But I think the U.S. has the luxury of actually pursuing that. India is not a big enough country to be able to pursue that. Where they differ is that Modi and India cannot afford to and do not want to be protectionist. So that is one very important point of difference. They also share a platform on immigration. So India has also taken up immigration as a banner issue in the last two years under Modi, and it's been misused uh, to disenfranchise or deny citizenship to uh, some Muslims in some cases uh, in specific states. So there is a lot in common, I think, ideologically. Now, the idea of representing the common man, this is really coming from the fact that in both countries, growth has not necessarily led to the betterment of the educated middle income or maybe the blue-collar workers. So in India, for example, right now, one in six persons with a bachelor degrees or higher is unemployed, right? And that's in a population where literacy is 70%, right? So there has been growth, but there are very significant shares of the population that have not been part of that growth story. In India's case, 70% of India is still rural, close to 70%. And the rural areas have really been stagnant. Uh, uh, there's been some growth, but very little. So there's a huge population of voters who do not feel that their lives have improved. At the same time, they're seeing the urban areas, the more globalized parts of the economy, you know, go past them and go above them at a very high speed, right? So they, they are culturally transforming into a more globalized, more westernized population. And economically, they are living lives that are significantly better. There's more security, right? And so the vast majority of voters in India share with, I think, a substantial minority of voters in the U.S., this belief that uh, the country is not speaking to their concerns and to their problems, whether that's economic or whether that's cultural. Yeah. Right? And so they're appealing to the same uh, concerns, I think, uh, both on the cultural and economic front. Yeah, that's that's so interesting to think about the the rural voters. On the one hand, they feel like they're being left behind, but also they vote in in much higher numbers. Mm-hmm. It seems, which uh, that's that's a, a, a unique combination. I don't think I've I've heard. I mean, I'm sure it exists other places, but I, I've not heard it framed particularly that way any anywhere else before. So this is it's a it's a very strong lesson for the BJP because what happened is. From 1999 to 2004, the BJP served out a full term where it did very well economically. It initiated a lot of economic reforms that really pushed India's growth forward. And then it campaigned in 2004 on a slogan of India shining, which tried showcasing you know, all of these uh, sort of market-based accomplishments. And they lost very badly. And the reason they lost is because their reforms had not addressed rural concerns. So they really got the message in a very sort of strong way, right? They lost uh, uh, an election they could have won. And so this time they have come back very aware of the fact that they need to be speaking to rural voters on, you know, on, on every level that they can. Mm-hmm. So where do you think things go from here? I know you, you don't have a crystal ball. You you're not, uh, not, can't obviously predict the future. But based on your research, your, your familiarity, your kind of sense of where politics are, where do you think we are a year from now, five years from now? 
So I think the the floor of my expectations would be that India would continue, it will continue as, you know, uh, an electoral democracy. Elections will be held, they'll be reasonably fair, people will continue to participate. But I think unless there is either a single party or a set of party that really emerges that has the same organizational capacity as the BJP to mobilize people, unless that happens, what we will see is the BJP in power and the BJP weakening a lot of the rights and liberties and checks and balances that we take for granted. And given what's been happening in the last two years, so we're seeing minorities being lynched and, uh, you know, women being checked for doing things that that uh, in terms of participating in education or jobs or behaviors or clothing, that's inappropriate. We're seeing being curbs being placed on the press, on civil society. We're seeing institutions like the judiciary and educational institutions being stacked uh, with ideologically compatible appointees. Unless there is a rival, either at the national level or there's a network of rivals that are successfully challenging the BJP at the state level, I see procedures going forward, but not not strong institutions, not strong civil liberties. So I, I think it's a really dangerous uh, sort of point in time right now. Right. Well, certainly so much more we could unpack here, but but I know we have to wrap up. I know this has been very helpful for me. Hopefully it, it has been for, for our listeners as well, kind of learning where things are, are in India and, and where they might go from here. So, uh, Vanita, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. So uh, thank you, Jenna, and thank you, Vanita. Ter- terrific interview. Uh, she really knows her stuff. Yes, uh, really not, not at all surprised really by the good. quality of that of that interview, having worked with Vanita for a number number of years. Uh, a couple things struck me here in, in terms of what we've talked about with other countries and trying to think about what's kind of similar here in India uh, from Vanita's perspective and what's different. And, you know, one thing that struck me, two things that struck me about what's similar with some of the other countries we've talked about is the attack on the liberal part of liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. That, civil rights, separation of powers, independent sources of power, that sort of thing. Yes, the way, yeah. they, the way they've gone after other sources of countervailing mm-hmm. power, right? Mm-hmm. They've gone mm-hmm. after universities. Universities, they've gone after the press. They're trying to stack the judiciary. Right. Uh, this yeah, is a playbook we've seen exactly. in, in many places. And again and again. And uh, also, I guess, the this sort of populist emphasis on ethnic identity and a kind of sense of belonging versus outsiders. In this case, having to do with a kind of uh, more having to do with Hinduism and Muslimism. And right. Muslims. And, and Islam. Yeah. I mean, so it yes, is interesting Islam. to me how so often, <laughs> maybe more often than not, uh, religion uh, is presented not as a uh, a set of values or or even beliefs or this is how we expect ourselves to behave. It's a fundamentally a sense of identity. It's a way of saying we're in and you're out. And in you know you're talking about Hinduism, you know, which is just this vast array of beliefs and expressions and. What it what unites everybody <laughs> in in this in this present manifestation in this political manifestation is that what we're not 
is Muslim. We're not Christians. We're not Buddhists. We're not Sikhs. And so this is, and then this idea, this identity becomes um, an essential dimension of what it means to be Indian. I thought she also pointed to something else that was somewhat different from some of the other cases we've talked about, where you have an individual leader who uses sort of populism, uses democracy to take control and then turns in a more authoritarian direction. But it's coming from that leader. And as individual, and there's something kind of cultish. She makes an important point there that this is really the party. Right. Modi is just a, a, a member of that, the leader no, of I, that party. And now, this may be the Republican Party in the future, but it wasn't necessarily before Trump. True. And, and the very fact that they don't have that kind of identification with a personality um, means it's got a, a more staying power going forward, right? Very possibly. But, yeah. but the other thing that I thought was really interesting is this idea um, that that unites Trump and Modi, that um, you, the uh, the good Hindu Indian, and you, the good middle class American, who reflect these values in, in your person and in your and in your behavior, have been left behind by something in in the way this country's going. Yes, right. And so in the United States, it's that you know for whatever reason, if it's immigrants or or an, a liberal elite, you salt-of-the-earth Americans should um, right, rightly feel betrayed that you're doing everything you're supposed to do and yet you've been left behind. And in India, it's this sense that all this economic development doesn't seem to be trickling down to you and all this Western influence is undermining what makes our country effectively Indian. And it's a very, very common and very yes. powerful strategy. I do think <laughs> the idea that there are, there's um, a, a common sense of you cannot just appeal to one subset of, of yeah. a country like that and be successful. Yes. You have to you move build beyond a co- yeah, build yeah. a coalition. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, this is all very, I learned a lot today. Yeah, a, a terrific interview. And we yeah. are so lucky to have people like this in Penn State. And it is worth coming i mean just thinking i mean it's it's the oldest I feel like we should end on a we are change yeah so so the it's the <laughs> oldest um teaching ploy in the world is to write a paper or sign a paper where you say compare and contrast these two things but it's really useful in this case right because there's something big going on at a worldwide level but yet there's something distinctive and distinctively important about every little example of it so, I mean, that's, I guess, what we're trying to do. And I'm, I, we appreciate all of you for listening. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so from uh, the McCourney Institute for Democracy, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.